Nixon refused to give it. In Reagan's second term in the White House, his views and his policies were generally at variance with his image as a truculent cold warrior. Indeed, during the final three years of his presidency, Reagan was usually among the doves in the often contentious American debates about the Soviet Union. Reagan was also horrified by the possibility of nuclear war, even during his first term in the White House. The rehearsals for nuclear war of the early 1980s that I had earlier discovered were not at all representative of Reagan's overall approach to nuclear weapons. In fact, these doomsday exercises of the early 1980s may have scared Reagan into trying to change American policy. In his second term, he repeatedly prodded U.S. military and defense officials to accept cutbacks in nuclear weapons and ballistic missiles. Increasingly, Reagan rebelled against the forces and ideas that had made the Cold War seem endless and intractable. From 1986 to 1988, the period at the heart of this audiobook, Reagan was increasingly at odds over Soviet policy with three separate but overlapping constituencies, each of which had played a powerful role in influencing American policy during the Cold War. The first of these was the political right. That is, the same American conservatives who had supported Reagan from the beginning of his political career through his early years in the White House. Magazines such as National Review and columnists such as George Will despised Reagan's unfolding diplomacy with Gorbachev. The second constituency opposing Reagan was made up of the so-called realists the group of officials who had teamed up to run American foreign policy during the Nixon and Ford administrations, including Nixon, Henry Kissinger, and Brent Scowcroft. During the 1970s, this group had battled with conservatives, including Reagan himself, as they pursued detente with the Soviet Union. Yet in the mid-1980s, they, together with the conservatives, opposed the efforts by Reagan and his Secretary of State George P. Schultz to reduce the arsenals of missiles and nuclear weapons that had been at the heart of America's military strategy throughout the Cold War. Third, leading American intelligence and defense officials also disputed Reagan's view of Gorbachev. They argued that the Soviet leadership was not changing as much as Reagan and Schultz believed, and that Gorbachev represented merely a new face for the same old Soviet foreign policies. At the end of Reagan's presidency, these constituencies were all working to slow down Reagan's diplomacy with the Soviet Union. When Reagan left office, the new George H. W. Bush administration took office, convinced that Reagan had gone too far with Gorbachev. Bush froze diplomacy with Gorbachev for most of his first year in office, until just before the fall of the Berlin Wall. Two decades later, in the aftermath of the U.S. intervention in Iraq in 2003, it is tempting to view American foreign policy as an unending struggle between, on the one hand, hawkish neoconservatives, and on the other hand, more cautious realists, 
and so it is all the more tempting to superimpose back onto the events of the 1980s the philosophical struggles of the post-Iraq milieu. Yet, in fact, this would be inaccurate. When one looks at what actually transpired during the final years of the Cold War, one finds that history did not play out in the way that we might imagine today. As Reagan proceeded to deal with Gorbachev and to consider cutbacks in nuclear weaponry, both the political right and the foreign policy realists were against him. William Buckley's National Review published with approval a critique of Reagan's Soviet policy by Nixon and Kissinger. During his second term in the White House, Reagan repeatedly forsook the advice of his old conservative friends, while also rejecting the ideas of the national security establishment. This